Hey, Jason. Hey, Juan. How are you? Good morning. Good. How are you? It's a bright, beautiful Saturday morning during the pandemic. Yeah, it's beautiful here in Ohio as well. Great. So, um, so we're we're about to play part three of our three-part crossover series with our Foundations podcast, and this series was actually recorded on February 11th. Surprisingly, Juan, a long time ago, before the world shut down in response to the coronavirus pandemic. So to jog your memory, the purpose of this series was to trace the evolution of strategic action by looking at some key historical moments and shifts in the constellations of power, emphasizing state and private relationships in the West. And in parts one and two of the series, we covered the 18th century rise of the liberal public sphere, the 20th century breakdown of uh, communicative participatory democratic procedures, the 90s rise of neoliberal thought, and the rise of modern military contractors in post-9-11 America, and the state's increasing dependence on corporations to fight wars. Now, these constituent parts share at least one common theme, increasingly surgical private applications of strategic action. So in our last segment, we kind of took this conversation full circle by uh, returning to our recurring theme of technology in the form of the rise of a new kind of strategic actor, the modern technocrat. Now, technocrats have been around for at least you know, since the 20th century, but today with the digitization of work and life, introduction of big data and advanced analytics, software automations, and AI, the modern technocrat, the likes of some familiar names like Bezos and Zuckerberg, Musk, and so on, they're now equipped with some amazingly powerful tools to predict and influence your behavior. So we're going to try to address this as a new form of technology-enabled strategic action in today's episode, the last part of our crossover with our Foundations podcast. Okay, but uh, before we get into it, we wanted to address some possible connections to the situation we currently find ourselves in. Um, at least most of us are still stuck inside, and for good reason. Um, so, one, I generally support the policy of an indefinite quarantine until we have a reliable treatment or vaccine. Uh, but I also say that as someone who is privileged enough to maintain my work and a steady income during this time of um, massive unemployment. Yeah, I I'm in the same position as you, Jason. I'm I I support policies that are uh, based on health recommendations to to sort of protect the populace and contain this virus from. Uh, I mean, we could put it in macro terms and think about how we've lost in the United States. There have been officially sixty some thousand deaths yeah. uh, registered since I think late March. So, you know, you could think about how that's how many people died in one month uh, and any kind of any kind of opening up of public life without the requisite kind of uh, testing uh, and other sort of policies to make sure to contain this virus could be another sort of wave of infections and deaths, which which I think any kind of moral calculation I mean, is is of how much we can do that and balance, let's say, economic well-being, is just it's just false. It's just a false uh, dichotomy of one or the other. I think we need to find. I think we have the imperative to find a way to take care of both needs, right? Yeah. Well, I don't think. I think framing it as one or the other, the way it's sort of been framed by some, is 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 a false problem and also just. Um, you can't defend it morally. Like, okay, well, uh, 
we have to learn to, you know, it's okay to lose 60,000 people, but what we really need to worry about is is um, maintaining people and work and, and income. Uh, that seems to me a false dichotomy. But I, yet I'm in the same position as you, Jason, uh, where I don't, I'm able to continue uh, making the income I have uh, and not have to go out into the public sphere. So it cre- this creates a huge tension for people, obviously. Absolutely. And it's it's an important privilege we have. But, but you know, as you mentioned, there are economic impacts. So there's a financial services firm, Moody Analytics. They published this finding that daily economic activity or consumption basically is down 30%. <clears throat> So, of course, the impacts to the economy are huge, and I think we'll briefly touch on that a little bit more. But I also wanted to talk briefly about my own kind of personal experience with this. And while I'm, I'm lucky enough to have clients who I can almost fully support remotely, uh, the shutdown has caused some very significant changes to how I get work done, to how I connect with my clients and manage teammates, and to the more traditional organizational culture in which we used to operate. And most viscerally for me, the work is actually sub- substantially increased and intensified to the point where I'm barely keeping up with basic house chores and hobbies like yep. Panoptic. Honestly, don't worry, I'm keeping right. up one, but um, yeah. it's been a challenge. So why do I think this is the case? I think it partly relates to this sense that we need to over-communicate now. And these illusory work-life boundaries, arbitrary and untrue they may be, um, have become blurred uh, at least in at least for me in in my uh, yeah. work life. So, you know, working nights and weekends has always been expected for me, but now it is so much the norm, you know, to get a work request at 11 p.m. on a Friday night. Wow. So that's been difficult and that's that's a change that uh, has occurred yeah. after uh, transitioning into this pandemic uh, related shutdown. So, I mean, most of my career I've worked in organizational environments where where, where the cultural expectation was you're not working if I can't see you. Uh, but now, of course, if we don't reject yeah. that culture and mindset, uh, we don't really survive organizationally. So basically, we are overcompensating by planning and attending extra meetings, making sure to check in with each other several times a day and pumping out endless emails and messages. And of course, we're wholly dependent <laughs> right. on digital communications platforms to perform much of this extra communication and manage each other reliably. So there's a learning curve for those of us who are not used to managing uh, projects through digital mediums exclusively, which is most of us, I think. Yeah. Thinking a little bit about what this means for the industry where I operate. um, Consulting firms that cannot adapt quickly in this environment where there's no clear resolution in, in sight, and the impacts here may be permanent, or some of them may be permanent. So the firms who are stagnant will be outcompeted by the others who adapt and embrace the shift to digital work environments. And even worse for industries where digitizing your product or service isn't really an option. So an economist colleague of mine cited a statistic that 80% of retail stores might never open again. Movie theaters, restaurants, the gig economic services, industries where many people come in contact with each other, uh, they're probably going to face similar challenges or worse. Yeah. Coming back to, Juan, our our core theme of technology, with the shift to digital environments, not not just across industry, but also across people's personal social lives, um, it's perhaps an opportunity for the modern technocrats to further digitize your personal data and predict your behavior. So in other words, more people operating and exhibiting their behavior and personal data on the internet means less data privacy and more centrally managed and deployed technology-enabled strategic analytic power. 
Right. So that's the dystopian view, right? But maybe one, when we couple this new strategic analytical power with new social and economic insight, there's good that can come out of this as well. So I, I learned yesterday that um, in Westport, Connecticut, where I grew up, and also in LA, um, those areas are deploying drones that can read the temperature of bystanders on the streets and tell people to separate in the event that someone with a, uh, with a fever is spotted. So maybe this too is dystopian for some of our listeners, but I also think it's pretty cool. And we could use this tool to you know, reduce the rate of infections as the world slowly reopens. So I just thought that was an interesting example of kind of technology in the COVID world. So Juan Pablo, what do you think about all this? Well, that last example, Jason, is one, just one of many that this COVID situation, in the many in which this COVID situation has sort of uh, put into stark relief this, one of the things we talk about, one of the themes that uh, at least I know I harped on about in our discussion um, that we're about to listen to, that the listeners are about to listen to, uh, which is this this fundamental tension between individual or private interests and sort of a general public interest. Uh, how do you align these, right? Uh, you know, what you just brought up is kind of puts puts our classic models of thinking about how to manage these tensions into, into configurations that we have yet to sort of find a uh, uh, satisfactory response to so how do you manage the public interest let's say of health and the kind of use of technologies like drones that you can use to sort of manage public health with things like surveillance um individual liberties uh the freedom to go out into public space and not be policed uh, and not be presumed let's say if, uh, that you're doing something wrong uh, and in a way also have the state uh, interfere with this liberty of your of your freedom of movement or your freedom of being in the public sphere in some way that is legitimate, right? In our classic, if, if we go back to that classic liberal framework, uh, we have found over time, we've developed over time these technologies for, for managing private and public interests. Um, and the liberal democrat the sort of like classic liberal framework right has a we could think of it as as a technology for for regulating these interests that has two fundamental elements right it has the market and the state and their interrelations and each one is supposed to be tailored to uh in a say structure a kind of system of action right and to regulate Actions that are that are private and sort of add them up to a public general interest. So it's it's really a f kind of interesting alchemy, alchemic operation that that these systems are supposed to carry out. Because on the one hand, as we sort of and I'll just sort of go over this really fast in the classic liberal framework, property owning individuals are supposed to be acting at, out of their own interests in the market, mediated by money, which is an disinterested decentralized medium that um, mediates all these sort of individual acts of self-interest and out of those self acts of self-interest people are supposed to be able to reap some sense of fulfillment and happiness right all of these acts are supposed to add up to a general happiness 
or a general good. And how do you do that? Well, then that's the law. You have the laws transforming all these, not only structuring the market and giving it some set of boundaries, but in a sense saying, okay, your your individual autonomy ends with when it starts hurting someone else's individual autonomy or getting in the way of someone else's individual autonomy. Um, this is... Uh, it has the system then has two pillars, right? One is dividing power on the one hand. This is the kind of classic liberal democratic technology. Divide power on the one hand in the state. Make sure you have uh, make sure you can't concentrate powers in any locus. So there's not uh, one executive sort of that concentrates all the power, but have a division between where laws are being made, where they're being applied, and where they're being reviewed, and. So legislative, executive, and judicial branches. But on the other hand, create a system of rights which sort of like codify this, what autonomy looks like, right? And these are things like the kind of basic systems of rights that we find in constitutions like the U.S. Constitution so, uh, that defend things like association, belief, the freedom to associate as you like, to believe, to believe whatever you want, to express whatever you want, expression. Um, but also key here is property right? Um, property, because you need that to be a fundamental right in order to then go and say, well, this whole sphere of, in, of, in, of private interactions are going to be mon- managed by money. Uh, private people, private individuals who are property owners who kind of interact strategically uh, will only are sort of like do this magical thing where they become public insofar as they're going into the into the public sphere to defend their private interests. And yet the law must somehow translate all these different contentious private interests in some kind of pe- public general good. It's really, you could think of that as a set of contradictions and tensions, right? How is it that we do this transformation of private interests and private activities into a general public good? The state is, and the law in particular is supposed to do this while at the same time protecting individual autonomy. This has been the kind of, this is kind of the historical solution that we found, let's say, in the United States to respond to the problems uh, of how to regulate this tension. Mm-hmm. With COVID, as you just talked about, though, we see how this is putting the those technologies and those systems for regulating interaction into in, in stark relief in terms of their contradictions and limitations. Uh, but you were just talking about, Jason, is really interesting because we're also seeing another thing that I think is the flip side of what you were talking about, which is the way work is changing, is the way we are, uh, the way the distribution of goods and services is changing. So companies like Amazon are, are doing great, right? Because they are taking advantage of the situation to say, well, we can consolidate specific way of distributing goods and services which is based on uh, not on brick and mortar stores but on on, on a globalized supply chains and getting things to people when they want to be a they don't even have to leave their houses to get it so you have to totally bypass the kind of uh, old economy of of people going to shop at physical places and and amazon is naturally, in a way, taking advantage of the situation to consolidate a kind of logistical framework for distributing material commodities, right? Right. Uh, taking advantage of a, of a globalized distribution, set of distribution chains that are can be managed uh, by things like data. So, so that, in a sense, 
you could say that maybe I'm stretching things here a little bit, right? But the increase of work that you're finding as someone who is now at home and in a screen and has to like maximize communication in a sense to coordinate things is kind of the flip side of an acceleration or maybe a consolidation of uh, distribution logistical framework in which somewhat large entities like Amazon uh, uh, are framing what what the actual movement of commodities look like, right? And they're setting the tempo for what that looks like uh, and bypassing any other kind of ways. And, and you, as you talked about, it's based on a sort of digital analytics of what people want and need. Uh, I can't go looking at anything on a screen on my web, web browser. Let's say if I go look for some shoes without the ad popping up at everything I go to and reminding me that I wanted those shoes maybe, right? The ad like will pop up on my Gmail and my Facebook and whatever website I go to, there's the ad, the shoes that I looked at, reminding me, hey, you looked at these shoes, you, you sure you still don't want them? You changed your mind, maybe you want them. But even more complex and more, more uh, advanced ways of in which uh, data and algorithms uh, are acting upon uh, our everyday perceptions in a way to, to, to link our consumption patterns uh, to meet, let's say, let's say the the framework or operations of let's some of an Amazon, or to fi- or to link up with the kind of operational interest of an Amazon, uh, which at the end is nothing else than a company trying to make sure it, it can dominate its its market as much as possible. So this is this is a uh, it's this I think COVID in the way that we see this how we are in this stasis position where. On the one hand, uh, our whole classic liberal system has developed into something like a system that is tied to the constant expansion of GDP every year or it can't function. Um, And yet, with COVID, we have to, in a way, stop that system, but we have, but we can't because then the system sort of like career you know careens out of control this puts into stark relief the kind of technologies we've found for mediating public and private interests and their limits right uh i think it really lays in stark the contradictions in stark light the contradictions that exist when your technologies for regulating public and private interests uh and we're talking about classic liberalism and we're not saying that this is this remains sort of the framework the framework has evolved as we've talked about and changed a lot but it sort of remains the code that we have legally inscribed into the way the system works with some changes here and there. And it's, it seems unable to meet the test of this specific moment to both have people be able to continue meeting their material needs and not go out into public space and die from, you know, getting some, getting COVID. Uh, mm. This is, I think, this is, I think, to me, the way this, 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 if we if we think about it in this abstract sense that we touched upon to an extent on this, uh, the COVID, uh, what COVID is showing us, the way it's sort of putting in this into stark relief. So, can you have this hyper efficient supply chain approach that Amazon so effectively employs for their business purposes? Um, can you apply that to? state governance and administration i mean i don't see why not right i think the ideology that or the idea that 
only a large, enormous private enterprise like Amazon could use um, some sort of centralized planning uh, based on its anal analysis of markets and analysis of supply chains and suppliers and and uh, data and algorithms to coordinate this massive operation of getting things to people's houses uh, can be pulled off and that, let's say, agencies could not pull something similar off to different ends. Um, I don't think this is necessarily empirically true, though, of course, there are specific questions of mot of what motivates the dynamics of an institution you know amazon because it's a, a private firm is particularly motivated to expanding its cap its uh, market share and to to if making more efficient its processes i mean that's what drives it right uh, and it's extremely good at doing that a government agency would not be necessarily <laughs> tailored to doing that um, to doing such a thing nor would we necessarily want to, let's say, um, I mean, this brings up a bigger question, right? Like, I mean, maybe something I'm not going to touch up on right now, but it depends on the government agency, what they're trying to do. Uh, does what, what point does Amazon become, let's say, something more like a, more like a utility, right? Uh this gets to questions like the post office and what's going on right now with the U.S. Postal Service, which is in the red because, particularly because it's forced to uh, track out the retirement of its in, of its members like 50, 60, 70 years out. So, of course, it's going to be in the red uh, and is treated, therefore, as a sort of inefficient uh, money-losing operation and right now... Uh, at the national level, government is basically saying, well, we're going to have to just sort of like sell it and privatize it. Uh, does does Amazon take over the role of sort of U.S. Postal Service war, uh, and what it does is sort of distributing mail? Uh, why would one system be better than the other? What are we, how are we managing then public and private interests in that sense? I think, I think this is an interesting question, Jason, but... Uh, yeah, well, even if it was, Juan, even if it was the will of the people to really lean into this kind of technocratic governance and what we're going to touch on later in, in today's episode. The way the government is currently structured, I don't believe they'd be able to execute this, at least not endogenously. Um, because in the same way that we see mass government dependency on corporations to fight wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, for example, we see a massive uh, outsourcing of technical knowledge to the private sector as well. So to collect the data, to process the data, and to apply the data, it's all things that are currently outsourced to private actors, private technocrats. So if we wanted to get closer to an optimization of um, legislation and distribution of resources to people who need them when they want them uh, in a way that wouldn't be tied to profit interests, um, you would need to restructure that relationship. Or you'd need to bring those contractors uh, into new types of contracts focused on different goals. Yeah. Legislative and administrative right. sphere. Well, I mean, I think it, it takes us back to this maybe uh, to wrap up my reflections, Jason. I know you had a, a couple of other things you wanted to touch on. Is if we think about this in terms of, uh, of technologies that as, as humans we've, we've developed, legal and economic technologies, one for distributing and 
goods and services and regulating the interests of individuals in a sort of decentralized, very efficient, but also very, I think it's fair to say, chaotic way, which is the market with its with its efficiencies, its logic, its its sort of dynamism, but also its also its incapacity to think about, um, let's say, it's it's it has no moral framework, right? And it's and it's sort of way in which things are treated as sort of as uh, scarce, and yet and yet because of that very scarcity, um, open up to to use regardless of let's say other consequences, ecological or or so forth. Uh, on the one hand, that, and on the other hand, the law, which is, f- and the division of powers at the national, at the let's say government level, uh, it's the system of rights and the, and the division of power is sort of like regulated by law. These are technologies, right? So if we if we think about how we can hold true to some of the insights that they have, like regular, like not not concentrating power in any locus, because that's that's a recipe for 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 the abuse of power and the therefore the abuse of individual autonomy and the and the autonomy of people in general and on the other hand finding technologies for for somehow yes in a in a somewhat decentralized manner regulating what the meaning of people's needs but at the same time not not making a sort of like godhead of one technology for doing that and saying well what how do we regulate the meaning of people's material needs with a sort of general interest ecological social cultural how do we tie um, and how do we use new technologies to do that right how do we use new technologies like data algorithms and in a way inscribe them into our institutional framework legal institutional framework to give people new sets of rights and ways of regulating their affairs i mean this is all very abstract i know but we cannot continue to think that these old technologies are necessarily infallible or perfect uh, and that we should not tinker with them and change them in order to to and to to find new ways to balance public and private interests great well i think that pivots nicely into this question of a new normal after coronavirus Juan, you sent me this article by Jeff Mann in the mm-hmm. in the morning, uh, which I read. It's called Irrational Exceptions. Mann essentially argues that um, radical uncertainty is the new normal. And basically, we have to move beyond this militia of rational uh, expectations governing market behaviors because our models simply cannot predict futures or not the kind of not a kind of a COVID-19 mm-hmm. future. So in the same sense, It'd be wrong to think of this pandemic as something that is exogenous to the system. Rather, it is endogenous to our normal political economic environment. So I wanted to read this excerpt from the article on how the virus spread. So man says, marginalized workers and consumers in the global south were necessarily the ones likely to initiate transmission because they're the ones who still do the risky low-wage work close to nature. The instantaneous and unregulated networks that constitute global exchange penetrate the entire hierarchy and make this trans- transmission virtually unstoppable. So you can make this critique of neoliberalism, mm-hmm. one. You can argue that it created or at least contributed to the situation we find ourselves in now. Perhaps we can start automating away what remains of dan- dangerous manual work, but that's, of course, more superficial how does the economy need to be structured to reduce the risk of a pandemic? 
Uh, is it a kind of technocracy with more central controls, UBI, and some form of industrial policy? That's basically the Andrew Yang way. Um, Mann concluded his article with the following, the new economics will have to be more wary, more placed in time specific, more deliberate, and probably a lot slower and more costly. So I know that's not the most reassuring advice from man, but appropriate, right? Given that the new normal is apparently radical uncertainty. Yeah. So I mean, I mean, and the, this gets back to our source code, the legal source code that we're talking about here, one that makes property and a sort of like right that is not qualified, right? What does that mean to make right to make property a sort of natural right of human beings? Uh, when that is part of your source code and you're still trying to regulate the interests of private individuals and individual and public interest, and you are unable because of your source codes to have ways to address the needs of, say, things like ecosystems, um, and in which anything can fall under ownership, from seeds to formulas to medicines to land to rivers to name it, right? Anything that's not human or counted as a citizen. You have a source code that is unable, in a sense, to to figure out how to regulate public and private tensions and interests in a way that accounts for the necessities of, of the ecosystems we all depend on. I mean, we are, it's funny how, how in a sense we are, we are reverent to the science of economics, but we find no reverence to the science of scientists, of, uh, of natural scientists who are telling us, hey, in 200 years, you've dug up you know, millions of years of deposit of organic matter, and you've changed the constitution of of the ke- the, chemi- the chemical constitution of the planet in a way that's going to have feedback mechanisms that could be destructive for all sorts of things, right? How do we align these two, right? How do we align the classic political problem of how to manage the tensions, the interests of individual with those of collectives in an expanded sense that says that we somehow have to include into our calculus the needs, the balances of ecologies. Uh, Clearly, uh, a neoliberal framework that does not account for these at all, but in a sense sort of like hyper hyper speeds up this this notion of the individual as a as a sort of a rational actor maximizing uh, costs over benefit uh, over, uh, sorry, benefits over uh, costs in some kind of cost analysis framework of making decisions cannot be, cannot necessarily account or cannot be the, the, the sort of operational framework for how do we balance not only the, the liberty and, of an autonomy of individuals, but also the general interest in an expanded sense of some, some kind of ecological stability, which doesn't necessarily mean that we go back to some old, you know, that we start looking at the past and saying, well, you know what, we need to go to some kind of central, I actually think the Andrew Yang model is faulty because of that, right? This idea that we could centralize power and have some technocratic governance runs afoul of the insight of the the core liberal insight that we cannot, we cannot, in a sense, uh, uh, compress power into one locus, because then we are beneficial. Then we rely on some sort of like, some sort of uh, good philosopher king or set of philosopher kings. But what happens when these people get corrupted, right? Um, right. You've got your Singapore, but you, then you've got your you've got worse other examples of of where stuff isn't as pretty when there's a very technocratic elite kind of running things. The fact is, we need democracy, but we need democracy that looks something. 
like a some kind of change of what that has meant under classic liberalism without necessarily saying that we uh, need to let go of some of the insights. But we cannot make, uh, I would stress again, we cannot sort of like say that these technologies were somehow infallible and perfect and that we should just go back to them, which I think is, has become, um, which I think is a, a very conservative uh, sort of nostalgia that we could go back to some original American framework, and that would be everything would be okay. In which the mar- in which the state is super super limited, and it's to nothing but managing contracts and and throwing people in jail if they break contracts or they hurt somebody, and everything else should be managed by the market. Uh, that's simplifying things. Neoliberalism is tending in that direction, and its models, as as this sort of article that you brought up talks about, are ultimate ultimately are uh, have a vision of how collectives relate to the society and what risks they're managing that uh, is very problematic because the models out of which policy is is made cannot account for for these other things that we talked about uh, these so-called externalities right all right well keep listening because in uh, part three of our foundations crossover uh, we go a lot more in depth into some of these issues and talk about some of the technologies that could be viewed as problematic or could become a part of the solution. And whether, Juan, to your point, uh, the solution is more of an Andrew Yang centralization or something that can be more decentralized with different pockets of power while maintaining semblances of democracy. So that's you know a fascinating conversation that we're going to continue having here. Uh, well, you know, Jason, uh Thanks for this. Thanks for joining me to do this somewhat short introduction. Um, a little longer than most introductions, but Jason and I have joked that we have a hard time keeping it under 20, 30 minutes. So uh, this is what did you call it? An infinite regression yeah, of we we joke about how this introductions podcast, a podcast is of just turned into an infinite regression of introductions to introductions to introductions. But I think we managed to keep it to thirty minutes. So I hope the listeners can enjoy the rest of uh, what's left. And if you're enjoying what you're hearing, please feel free to uh, support us on by visiting our Patreon uh, in any way possible or by responding with comments and suggestions for what you like about the podcast, what you don't, maybe you don't like these long introductions, or maybe you just want an, a podcast that is just introductions. Um, maybe we can start a new podcast, Jason. Yeah, we're accepting names. <laughs> infinite introductions there you go yeah maybe another podcast on the side which is just introductions but anyway <laughs> it's good to uh thanks jason and i hope you stay safe during this uh shutdown and same until to you, our next same to our listeners episode. and um appreciate you tuning in during this challenging time so enjoy the rest of the show great the views that i express on this podcast are mine and the same for our co-host juan pablo well they're his Listening to Panoptic, relating theories of communication, power, and technology to practical institutional issues and everyday life. Welcome to the podcast. 
I wanted to start drawing the connection to technology. Uh, your point about the executive branch trespassing in legislative affairs and also vice versa, kind of the legislative branch deferring that authority to the executive branch may actually tie into how we think about why has the government not been very good at overseeing our contractors overseas. And then also this kind of lack of understanding and knowledge about technology and the ability to properly regulate big data. So I think we're going to see some interesting connections there. It's worth noting that every president, at least for the past uh, two or three decades, has, you know, regardless of party affiliation, has done more and more through executive action. You know, one perspective is that the powers of the legislative branch have become more and more um, constricted. And, and partly, I mean, this could be through uh, the legislative branch itself deciding to defer this authority away because the, the kinds of policies that are required are too complex for the legislative body to uh, understand and manage themselves. <clears throat> and maybe we'll get back to that later. But yeah, let, let, let's draw this link to technology now. So, I mean, the government's unprecedented use of, of private military contractors is one example of new capitalist uh, institutions appropriating authority away from the state, authority from the state, uh, and or the state, like I said, deferring authority to the markets. But uh, And that's kind of an interesting parallel as well. But, but maybe big tech is the big picture here. So if we go back in time to the Federal Trade Commission privacy law debates in 1997, uh, tech industry specialists lobbied to prevent the introduction of regulations on the collection of personal data. And they argued that tech firms were capable of self-regulation and that government intervention would be costly and counterproductive. Um, on the other side of the aisle, mostly uh, libertarian groups, they voiced concerns about companies accruing large swaths of personal data posing a threat to civil liberties. And a commissioner asked, where should we draw the line between the uses and applications of big data in the electronic age the, and, and personal privacy? And this scenario comes straight from uh, Shoshana Zuboff's recent NY Times article, You Are Now Remotely Controlled. Uh, a lot of pathos in, in, in that name. But, but I mentioned her earlier, and I think I'm, I'm going to refer back to her a lot because I think she makes some very interesting points on the rise of big tech and makes it kind of easy to see some connections between big tech and, and capitalism and contractors in general, kind of in this post-9-11 era. So according to Zuboff, the commissioner's line was never drawn, and 20 years of history shows that basically the tech industry won out here. So around the same time, the government started pouring money into large tech-oriented management consultancies like Booz Allen, McKinsey, Accenture, and others, um, not just to support military operations, but also to optimize efficiencies, cut costs, and improve mission effectiveness. Uh, my intuition here is that the government's increasing dependency on private military contractors helped expedite the government's inevitable uh, increasing dependency on management consultancies and later tech firms. And between 2001 and 2018, federal spending on IT grew by an average of 3% every year. Total spending on IT today is over $100 billion. And according to a recent Bloomberg government report, by the end of the fiscal year, roughly 100% of the government's IT budget will be contract funds. So in other words, tech firms will manage all of the government's technical knowledge, resources, and capability. And part of the issue here is that tech people don't want to work for the government. 
Uh, there are perceptions that the government is slow, bureaucratic, traditional, rank-oriented, and far too concerned about what you do, what you smoke, in your, per- in your personal time. That's especially not good if you're a, a tech geek. So the <laughs> right. government... The government simply cannot attract the tech labor it needs to compete with the markets. And similar perceptions influenced the collapse of military enrollment over the past several decades. After 9-11, barely experienced soldiers were just aching to transition into companies like Blackwater, which paid higher wages, saw more action, and operated outside kind of the oppressive military hierarchy. Hmm. So there was a recent study that found data to be more valuable than oil, And I think the realization that data wasn't just an instrument, but a completely new market unto itself is really what kicked modern capitalism into hyperdrive. Um, And by modern capitalism, I mean thinking in the post-9-11 era. So in a a matter of years, surveillance capitalists have become the dominant arbiters of 21st century knowledge. And some of this, especially... uh, um, that data is more valuable than oil. I should just uh, plant a flag. This was this was an Andrew Yang talking point, and I'm extremely <laughs> um, saddened that right before we started recording, I saw that Andrew Yang had dropped dropped out of the race. Oh, um, I hadn't seen that. Just yeah, Juan and I have gone back and forth on uh, Yang quite a bit, but but he he really um, a lot of his talking points uh, fit nicely in kind of the the conversations we're having on big yeah. data and technology and. Yeah really kind of a dystopian view of, of what that could mean and, and how we should think about regulating it. So it's too bad he, he we won't be hearing from him for a little <laughs> bit longer. <laughs> Until next time. Until next anyway, time, Jason. Uh, <laughs> he'll be back. Oh, I'm sure he'll be he'll back. He'll be back, yeah. Jason. <laughs> I'll hold your hand until he gets back. Joshua, do you, do you have any thoughts on Andrew Yang, quick? Um, not in particular. I yeah, I, I agree. I like how he's um, bringing up some of these topics that don't seem to be um, on the minds of a lot of citizens and politicians both. And he's got some interesting views. Um, I, I personally view it more as if he were to get elected and get absolutely everything he wanted, that the resulting effect would probably be more dystopian than utopian. It's To me, at least, it seems as though... It sounds really good, but in reality, as long as we still have a capitalist society, um, I worry about how that would actually play out. But the the more interesting thing to me is the rise of techno-populism in general, where you have this mm-hmm. with, I think it's, is it the Pirate Party um, over in Europe? And there's some other parties around the world that are rising up that are proponents of things like universal basic income and cryptocurrencies and using tech and data um, to make decisions, governance decisions, and using things like social media very efficiently and effectively. And it's this influence of tech, but it's populist movements. And it's just kind of interesting. It's an interesting thing that has come up recently in society that I don't believe has been around for very long. Yeah. 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 and there's a lot. I mean, we're, there's a lot there in terms of these these I think backlash populist movements as they relate to tech, and I think that's a really important, really, really interesting field to look at um, because it, it brings up something that I think links up with what you're talking about, Jason, which is uh, this lobbying effort by private enterprise, right? Because they understood, I think, that soon they would be able to capitalize on data. Um, 
this goes precisely to the heart of what we're talking about in terms of the, the short circuits of what used what was considered uh, the bourgeois public sphere at its moment and what it's become in terms of the short circuits of what's supposed to be a flow of communication that turns into a legitimate law, right? Um, when our system is so influenced by money that it's hard to tell where political world formation and public opinion formation begin and private interests uh, influencing the legislative process end, it's hard to know whether our, you know, whether our regulatory system is actually reactive to the general interest rather than to private interests. Um, you know, would it, who owns the technology? Who gets to do what with the technology? How do they implement it and how does it drive government policy? And I think we could talk about that both in the, in the context of the military um, and military contracting and in the context of big tech, right? And how big tech plays, the roles big, big, big tech plays in our lives. Um, I think we have this idea that big tech creates all these fantastic new products for us that are all free, right? Google, Facebook, Twitter, all these amazing things. And some of them which are not like your iPhone and your cell phone and your tablet and your computer. But I don't think we realize that none of it is free, right? That there's always a marketing... I mean, most of us do realize that by now, but initially I think it took a little while for us to catch on to the fact that um, we are basically turning over very fundamental data about our behavior to these companies that they are trying as hard as they can using very complex, very sophisticated big data analysis tools and algorithmic tools to monetize. And that this means that they have everything in their interest to make sure that the administrative the administrative state does not get in the way of their profit-making initiatives in the interest of the public good, let's say, using data for different way, in different ways, making it accessible to different publics who might decide to wield it in more democratic ways. And I think this gets to what you were talking about, Joshua, how people are having, there's a backlash of, of, uh, if I understand you correctly, there's a backlash of all these people that are trying, in a sense, to capture, recapture technology and say, we want to have direct access to this technology, we want to use it, and we want to use it for ends that have nothing to do with money-making, necessarily, that have to do with community, that have to do with networking, that have to do with information flows. Uh, these are, these are you, we could see how our very tradition, if we want to frame it that way, and I think it's useful for us to frame it that way, our, our liberal democratic tradition, our Republican liberal tradition, our Enlightenment institutional tradition, whatever you want to call it, is very much feeling the strain of these, uh, of these, uh, of of this new capacity, technological capacity. I mean, 2008. What was 2008? I mean, uh, it was an. It was. I mean, there's there's a lot of arguments about what 2008 was, right? But to an extent, it was. It was this financialization of the housing market, which was about people in the stock market. Uh, betting on whether people would be able to pay their mortgages or not, uh, coming up with these very complex instruments that nobody understood uh, to create uh, equity, which was basically a house of cards at the end of the day. Uh, but it's, it's since 2008, it, that stuff has been eclipsed in ways that we can't even think of. I mean, what you were saying, Jason, in terms of data is more valuable than oil. Um, there are some fascinating articles about out there about futures uh, markets where you can bet, you know, where you can 
where you can hedge bets by betting, let's say, that uh, wheat is going to be worth so much in five years and and gold is going to be worth so much and oil is going to be worth so much. And so we're, we really have this sort of weird temporal, mm, I don't know what you want to call it, but this temporal disjoint in which our economic system is almost, especially if we're talking about things like Wall Street, it's no longer about banks funding small businesses and funding uh, building factories. It's about uh, using algorithms in a way to try to see what you could, if you can tell what the future is going to be, so to see how much you can profit it about it, with, with with side effects that are hard to, are really really difficult to to predict, uh, and that might and that really have nothing to do with classic economics and this notion of supply and demand, and really escape any kind of framework of whether whether uh, companies are actually producing anything that's useful to society or just sort of messing around with goods. And, and services the markets the markets put a very high price tag on that personal protect predictive data yep. and yet we don't share in any of the wealth generation on right. that right should we have property rights over that data and logistically how would that work so yeah. i mean one one of the things i liked about yang he was one of the only candidates who had i think the only candidate who had a data privacy policy yeah why why do we not um, see the profit ourselves for 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 that um, when companies can collect that data and sell it to anyone else, you know, and it's yeah. all happening uh, behind the scenes. But I mean, I think that's one way to pose the question. Another way to pose the question would be, um, who owns the data? Is it a public? Is it something that people should have access to? For instance, and should shouldn't just be even if the right. even if they're being produced by. Pr- by let's say Google or some forth, should people have access to it? Should governments have access to it? Um, should le- legislative bodies and administrative bodies have access to it in the name of better policy, for instance? Uh, these are all open-ended questions. I'm not sure what the answer is, but but I think uh, I th- well, you know one of the one of the effects of uh, this kind of I mean I would call it and we haven't brought this word word, word up, but 40 years of a sort of neoliberal ideology has been. Uh, not only as a sort of as a backlash to 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 the rise of the administrative state with the New Deal in World War II, has been a turn towards an ideology that uh, privatization is the best way to go. That public is always more clunky, more bureaucratic, more top down, less reactive, and so forth. Uh, number one, number two, opening up financial system, deregulating the financial system, delinking finance from everyday production. And industrial production, and and uh, and and number th- and number three, which I just lost my train of thought. Um, well, you were just were just saying, Jason, not uh, uh, intellectual property, making into making laws of intellectual property so, in a sense, uh, robust that it is difficult uh, for something, let's say, an idea or something produced, or I mean. The fact of the matter is a lot of the stuff that's being marketed and used by 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 big tech was it's just stuff that was developed in in labs and and so forth the internet was literally turned over to private sector in the 90s right i was just reading about it today um uh, in a in an article in a really interesting article in places journal uh, if you, i would really suggest that you check it out if you get a chance there's an article it's a it's a Really interesting uh, academic journal that, but, but writes in a very sort of um, 
everyday language. It's called, it's about smart cities. Um, it's called Smart Cities Buggy and Brittle, and it talks about some of the dangers that we have, that we face with smart, smart cities. And it, and it goes over the history of the internet and talks about how, you know, the internet was, you know, uh, developed through programs like ARPANET and research and development programs done by the government. Then consortiums, university consortiums kind of took over. And then in the 90s, um, basically was turned over by the government to the private, the private sector. So you really, we really have something that's developed through taxes, through public research money, through public research dollars, and it's being monetized. Uh, now, I'm not saying that the, pri- that the private sector hasn't come up with, you know, developed it and re- refined it and come, to, come, uh, come up with a lot of new technologies. But a lot of the work has been done with public tax dollars, and they are the ones monetizing uh, and using this data and, and, and privatizing this data and technology and making it unavailable for any kind of public use, for any kind of use that might be useful at the end of the day in terms of public interest. So I think there's another tension there in terms of private versus public interests. Um, hmm. I, I had a specific, you know, concrete case, and I think I'm not sure if we're going to have time with it because we're almost three hours in at this point. But, you know, I was going to talk about the, the rise of the smart city paradigm as a governing paradigm. You might have heard of sidewalk labs. Uh, you might have heard of Hudson Yards and what's going on. Um, I can, you know, maybe we'll we'll go into that, maybe not. But, it, but it's the way in which a lot of urban governance, uh, infrastructure governance, has slowly, it's, there's a new rollout in places like New York, under under mayors like Bloomberg, who's now a presidential candidate, a rollout of of a new platforms. They call it that platforms for the city, in which you know they're basically turning over the city management to Google. And to to be sort of dramatic about it, it's more a little more technical than that. And it's about letting Google basically use its technologies and platforms um, in tandem with uh, developers and so forth to produce totally computerized ubiquitously computerized environments in which uh, all all these sensors pick up all kinds of information that then supposedly can be used not only to uh, make city infrastructures more reactive to consumers, um, but also uh, and also make them sort of automatic in the way they function. So in a way, decouple them from politics, which I think is very problematic if we think about and discuss what that means, uh, but also to make sort of like but also to make the city itself a, 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 an engine for new monetizing schemes that all that data can create all kinds of, can derive into all sorts of new technologies and new products that we can't even imagine yet. You know, so goes the story of, of if we use, if we let sort of Google run the city, not only will it maximize efficiency, this goes back to this idea of efficiency as a sort of ultimate end and ultimate good uh, for, the, for the political public sphere, the urban public sphere, but also... Um, maximizing monetization by those who are managing our right they're not going to google's not going to manage our our cities for free they're going to look for a way to make money off of it so these i think this is very i could go into detail in some elements i could also point out to some really people who are interested i can point out some interesting articles um one of them is the one i just mentioned smart cities buggy and brittle in places journal which is a really fascinating article that talks about everything that all the things we don't think about um, that could go wrong in terms of risks with something like the smart city. If we if we link up every city infrastructure to to algorithms and to data and to and to computer um, 
to, to computer systems. I think it's interesting that, you know, people generally, consumers, citizens, I mean, they talk a lot about not being okay with this mass data, data collection. Mm-hmm. But when push comes to shove, they don't really fight too hard when kind of offered a service that is wholly contingent on this kind of data collection. You know, think of, there's a Delta Airlines uh, example. Recently, they were pilot, piloting a, a biometric data system at the Atlanta airport. And the company reported that uh, of nearly 25,000 customers traveling to Atlanta each week, 98% opted into the pilot, given that the facial recognition option was saving an average of two seconds for each customer at boarding or nine minutes when boarding a wide body aircraft. Mm-hmm. So it seems like there's there's like a kind of irresistible convenience here, yeah. which for many seems to outweigh perceived costs to personal liberties yeah. when push comes to shove. I, I, would, I, would, I would say for sure, I think that's the case. And I would ask the question though, well, you know, why is that the case, right? And, and let me give you another example. I think people are more apt to use Uber if they don't have any other option, right? It's super convenient. But... But why is there no other option? Why is there no good public transportation? Why is why do the bus systems not run on every five ten minutes rather than every hour? Um, why is there no there's no option? So what else are you going to do, right? Uh, plus the way it's being funded by by big by uh, capital from Silicon Valley, it can run on a loss. Uber doesn't make any money. Uber Uber saturates the market and uh, and uses contractors and the their algorithms and the fact that they're financed by big tech and don't need to make any money to drive prices down artificially and compete with taxis um, to to drive taxis out of business and to sort of take over the market. I mean, I'm being very Machiavellian the way I'm talking about it, but if you, I think I would urge people to to read about the sort of business model of some of these some of these firms like Uber and realize that it's actually their sort of their sort of short game is uh, artificially drive down prices because they don't make any money you know for for years they haven't made any money but they're funded by by so much money there's so much capital behind them that they don't need to make any money that's not the the point the point is to sort of create a framework for moving people around cities which is private and not public uh, I know people would get into a discussion about what they prefer in terms of public transportation versus private transportation, but there's no there's no option. So of course I'm going to take an Uber if I have to go downtown in a city where there's where the, I'm going to either walk for two hours, take a, a taxi for thirty dollars, or wait for a bus for two hours. Right? I can take the Uber for fifteen dollars. Um, you know, I would say I would say. What what other you know when we get on the internet we have absolutely as citizens we have absolutely there's almost no connection between us the laws that are being made the platforms that are being done what they're being used for uh, Google and Facebook have a lot more a lobbying muscle than any individual citizen does uh, maybe you know maybe groups of citizens come together and of course that changes the equation a little bit but me as an individual I can rant about Facebook all I want but at the end of the day, Facebook can sit down on the table with politicians, and I can't. Right? Let's let's think about Google and Facebook, who who really stumbled upon this gold mine that is big data in the early twenty first century, and you know, even companies like Ford, you know, given waning car sales, are slowly transforming into aggregators and sellers of data. But but you know, if if we think about 
what happened with Facebook and Google. Let's take Google. You know, the company went public in 2004 and revenues increased by 3,590%. And how's that possible? You know, the right. markets anticipated the value of Google's growing repository of behavioral data and predictive analytical models, and they rushed to share in the wealth creation. And this is one of the reasons why Uber is able to survive for the, the same kind of human futures trade. So, you know, we can begin to realize the spooky potentials of big data monopolies in 2012 and 2014. Going back to Zuboff, she mentions that Facebook's contagion experiments where corporate researchers planted sub subliminal cues and manipulated social comparisons attempting to influence user behaviors. This is a kind of modern strategic action, which is derivative of the old strategic action that affected the fall of 18th century intellectualism. But in 2012, Facebook attempted to influence users to, um, to vote in midterm elections. And in 2014, they attempted to influence users' emotional states, you know, sad or happy. So, and Facebook's experiments determined that it was possible to manipulate online cues to influence real-world behavior and feelings, and that this could be accomplished while successfully bypassing users' awareness. Yeah. And Google has done experiments like this as well. Here's here's a quick story that I was kind of telling you, Juan, before we started recording. I, I went on a date in 2016, <laughs> and for three hours, this girl could barely keep her eyes off her phone, her iPhone. And no, she wasn't waiting for an important call. She was playing what Zuboff calls the Google incubated augmented reality game Pokemon Go. <laughs> <laughs> and what was the objective of this game? It's to catch Pokemon? No, not really. The objective was to drive consumer traffic to Starbucks, McDonald's, local partners who paid a fee to subliminally advertise themselves through Pokemon Go. And who knows what data Google was able to collect on millions of people like my date who were literally addicted to this game. Yeah. So you know, we know that companies like Facebook and Google have been doing this kind of stuff for many years now. Um, this is how they do business and remain competitive, even in a political environment that isn't pleasant to them. It doesn't matter because at the end of the day, people will still pay for data. It's much like the oil industry, I think, in that, in that respect. So we can see even spookier things happening now as a result of the data markets. Look no further than Cambridge Analytica, a small political consulting firm who in 2016 harvested personal data on millions of people, and they used that data to target vulnerable individuals and propagandize at them to influence their political choices. Yeah. You know, this is what happens when strategic action and technology come together. Yeah. Zuboff understands the surveillance capitalist monopolization of knowledge as a form of social inequality, or she calls it um, epistemic inequality. And this harkens back to the information asymmetries of pre-Gutenberg societies, characterized by illiteracy and limited means of distributing knowledge. So thinking beyond the influence of the data markets, Perhaps another reason why lawmakers have failed to pass data privacy regulations is what Zuboff calls the unwritten policy of surveillance exceptionalism, which was forged in the after aftermath of September 11th. Uh, and when the government's concerns shifted from online privacy protections to a new zeal for total information awareness. So in retrospect, the rise of modern private military contractors and the rise of surveillance capitalists are uniquely compatible pairing. They work together, they complement each other in, in kind of an interesting way. They can both be understood as part and parcel of a kind of unchecked security state. Mm -hmm. So 
what might we be concerned about here? You know, we've and we've talked about some of this extreme forms of reliable strategic action that are based on predictive analysis, further constricting democracy, yeah. lack of resources to counter spread of misinformation, and companies becoming too big to fail. Silicon Valley companies, you know, enabled to make irresponsible decisions, posing serious risks to consumers without recourse. The government's lack. Uh, of knowledge and resources to effectively understand and manage these risks, much like their contractors in Iraq and Afghanistan. And the exteriorization of critical and analytical faculties to big tech companies and artificial yeah. intelligence. So if, if we think back to Percy's norm against the use of mercenaries, uh, you know, isn't there also a norm that is nested in the enlightenment and liberal traditions against stealing someone's property? So like uh, going back to what I was saying before, I, I feel like we should be primed to care about protecting our personal data, um, but we don't seem to, and that's just an interesting yeah. observation to me. Well, I mean, I, so. and this, this, this. Let me give you one more example, and then so uh, one of the things I wanted to bring up is it's an article by uh, an immediate theorist at the New School, Shannon Mattern. It's also in Places Journal, and it's it's called Instrumental City: The View from Hudson Yard, circa 2019. This was written in 2016, uh, and and Mattern is talking about Hudson Yards in New York under Bloomberg, the sort of vision for the city that Bloomberg was implementing at the time, which is very corporate driven. And she and she writes, you know, quote modeling basically about what this city would be and what it would do by creating a totally ubiquitously computerized environment. That would link sensors, let's say, to to your bathroom, to your, you know, to the park, to the the sewer system, so that everything, every movement, every kind of, every time you flush the toilet, every time, it's it's creating some form of data. She says, "quote Modeling software will process data on pedestrian flow, traffic, indoor and outdoor air quality, energy production and consumption, waste streams, and citizens' health and activity levels." Residents and workers equipped with tracking apps and smartphones as sensors will enjoy a, quote, interactive data-driven experience, end quote, and developers can use the harvested data to improve operational efficiencies, productivity, and quality of life to build a community that's more, quote, livable, equitable, and resilient. So she's she's quoting kind of the, you know, the, the literature created by the companies that are doing this. But in ideal, it's a totally... It's a totally deadified environment where in which every movement, every action is being somehow moved. And I think that brings a bigger question of, of this, what you just said, Jason, property. How much of that is property and how much of that within our own, which, within our old framing, which says, hey, we really value the autonomy of the individual, but we also value the neutralization of um, power so that there is a sort of consensus, political consensus of, of what we consider the, the rules of interaction that are morally acceptable at a universal level. Um, you know, these are the tensions that I've been trying to talk about, like as, as sort of our legacy, the Republican and liberal tradition, you know, the political will formation, civil law, and the autonomy of the individual. You could see how this model of making property, it's not just that your property is being taken away as an individual, it's, it's that your very acts as an autonomous individual are being are being graphed, uh, tracked, put together into models that in a way, the end game, 
and I think you brought this up, Jason, the end game is to be able to predict the future, your future, your actions, your your desires, your wants, um, for the end of monetization, for the end of increasing the bottom line. I think that brings up, you know, and when that starts overlapping with governance, it brings up, you know, it, it's hard, I think, to start theorizing and thinking, how does it totally short circuit this 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 framework that, and perfect as it is, was supposed to both protect autonomy of the individual and the sort of public interests and neutralize power by uh, via the, the the media of the law, and in a sense, we could see how it's imperfect because out of that, you know, the market sort of like in a sense grows. It, it grows. It grows too powerful, maybe to an extent, to be managed, and it creates. There's a necessity for this huge administrative state, and then these two get bound up, tied up, and uh, private interests are able to, in a way, uh, steer to an extent the administrative state for their interests. So it's really hard for the individual to feel in this very complex society that they have any that their interest and their opinion has any kind of filters in any way to what legis- the legislators do. I mean, think about how upset people are with politicians and why it is that people are going to anti-establishment politicians. They feel that their opinions and interests, the problems that they face, do not filter up to legislators because legislators are listening to big tech, big big industry, big, big finance, big, you know, lame it, right? And that is being translated into industrial policy. But here now you have the total saturation of the environment by 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 these very sophisticated instruments that it's not I don't know if I mean I'm I'm not sure I'm not I'm not trying to counter what you were saying Jason I'm just I'm trying to think out loud whether the right way to think about it is is this our property being taken or is the fact that we've turned and privatized and let um, industry in a sense be the one that owns this data and uses this data for its ends has in a sense taken away from us the capacity to to really wield a very powerful new tool that we have, which is big data and algorithms, which give us a whole new perspective on reality and on things we could never track before that could be wielded for the public interest, uh, perhaps, <laughs> under the right regulatory frameworks. How do, you pull, how do you institutionalize that in our system in terms of the constitutional law and to the law system and to the system of, of division between private and public? I think it's an open question, but I think what we haven't... Our 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 1.0 uh, software for 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 constitutional law and for you know our constitutional um, inheritance, which we could call like law 1.0 or constitution 1.0, could never have imagined this you know this uh, uh, this algorithmic governmentality, this algorithmic capitalism 4.0. Right? It's like there's a mismatch between these two dimensions, and there's a way in which we have to rethink the very framework of our institutional um, apparatus if we want to be able to reclaim and connect once again public interest and public the public good to law, to to, to administration, if you know what I'm trying to say. Um, right. if, if we were to let the markets continue to collect and monetize on this data, though, at that point, you know, maybe beyond the, the conversation on property rights, but yeah. Do we demand that we are paid for, for that data, which is uniquely tied to me as an individual person and my behavior? I mean, I'm not sure if that's the way to go, but another way to go is say, hey, any data you're producing is 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 a public good. 
it's it's a public good that should be uh, wielded. Um, you know, I think there's a complex question here. The question is, you're implementing all these technologies. You have all these algorithms that are parsing data for a specific end. I mean, at the end of the day, it's to be able to tell the future so they can uh, predict your desires and interests so they can sell you something. How, what other model could we create where we have technology that can produce data and sift it and, uh, and, and go through it to link uh, informal publics, the public sphere, to regulating its own interests in a more democratic way and to linking up with formal public spheres, legislators and so forth, to pass laws that uh, that regulate that, you know, regulate um that, that, that pass laws that program administration in a way that is reactive to, to people's interests. So for instance, I mean, you could use, you could use algorithms and data to make, in a way, um, both legislators and administrative people more reactive to, to people's actual claims, uh, their, their complaints, their ideas, what they actually want. Um, but that is not what data is used for data is used data data is proprietary it's it's private and it's used to tell the future so they can sell you things i mean i'm putting very very putting it very starkly but i don't think we began it's been i think it's hard i think we're at the cusp of thinking what is it how could we create a new institutional framework and for rethinking what this data is and who's going to own it wonder what platforms what are they going to be able to do with it i mean it's a it's an incredible wealth think uh to take one example think about this this city in Finland that uh, used data basically to create a public kind of bus system, and by using data to create a very efficient public bus system, because they could they could kind of like users could like I guess through an app or whatever it could tell the thing where they were and it could sort of pick up the best path or whatever. But this this calls for the ownership of that. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean it has to be public. It could be you know a private company working under a public uh, contract, but what the data can be used for is beyond goes way beyond sort of like maximizing the ability to tell the future so i can sell you something it goes to be able to it goes towards coordinating uh, very complex things like infrastructures uh, but the the question the key question is how do you make the flow of the way these things are managed democratic right um, how do you connect publics and their interests and their reactions and their opinions and their autonomy to the legislative process, to the administrative process, and how would how is this technology that we have access to now? How does that get? How does that start link relinking those spheres in a way that we can hardly, I think, start to imagine right now because it's because it's hard to think outside of the framework that exists right now. I think um, I have some answers for a lot of these questions here. Um, yeah, they. Let, let's go back to um, wrapping up. You had talked about government contracts, and we were talking about the role of government and surveillance, and um, how that how that plays out. And the project that came to my mind was Project Thin Thread, and that was one developed by the NSA. And they had built this prototype. It was a working prototype, and this was just prior to nine eleven. And they had a way of basically intercepting a lot of data like phone calls and things like this and analyzing that data with built-in privacy safeguards so that people's private information wasn't able to be accessed without a warrant. And this project, like I said, was a working prototype. It was in existence. And three days before 9-11, 
um, not to insinuate that there's a connection there, just for a time reference here, um, they canceled that project and they ended up going with a contract for a government contractor to develop a different project called Trailblazer, which was pretty much the exact same thing, just without the privacy safeguards. So, um, and it was very expensive. I think it was around $200 million or something like that. So we see that there are definitely deliberate decisions made by government to go the route of surveillance and data collection versus the route of what one you're talking about a lot, the classically liberal tradition, the enlightenment tradition of liberty, personal freedom, these types of things. And that's not the direction that government seems to go. Um, When we're talking about data, uh, I think Jason posed the question, why don't we see profits from our data? And I think you slightly answered yourself as well. But um, I, I would expound on that and just say that we do see the profits from our data being used by big tech and the profits are paid to us, not in money, but in services, number one. And the other one that we don't see as much would be stocks. So the idea here is that as Google, for example, collects all this data, makes all these decisions, makes a bunch of money, no, we're not directly getting that, but their stock price goes up a lot. And the majority of America has their retirement in something like a 401k or an IRA or something like this. And most people in today's world have those invested in ETFs and index funds, which are very heavily weighted towards big tech. And so if stock performance is doing well for the industry as a whole, then my 401k is going up, my retirement savings is going up, and I have free use of these services. Now, I would not argue that that is a great trade. Uh, Personally, I don't think that that is a good trade at all. But that is the trade that people are making. And so that would lead to the question that was posed, I think, by Juan, should we own our data? And that brings up the idea of digital ownership as a whole. And this is an issue that we have in today's world that didn't exist before, that digital assets are not assets that we actually own, mostly in today's world. If you do not control the network that they're located on, you do not own that asset. So even if I buy a book, for example, and I technically own that book on a platform online, that platform could then delist that book, and all of a sudden, I don't own it anymore. I paid for it, I owned it, but all of a sudden, it's gone, and I can't access it because I don't have control over the network, and I don't physically have that book. Now, maybe I could have downloaded it and put it on a USB and saved it that way. That probably would have been a good idea, but most people don't do these things. We basically lease um, the ability to access things online. That's how we treat digital assets now, and we treat data much the same way. We don't really think of it as an ownership issue, and I say we in the sense of most of society. Instead, it's things like streaming platforms like, um, what would you say, Pandora or Stitcher and places like this where you can stream music, you can stream audiobooks, you can stream whatever you want. You have something like YouTube, where you have access to all this wealth of information, all these videos, but you don't actually own it. Even if you create a video on YouTube and upload it, technically, they do have the power to delete it, and it's gone forever. And there's nothing you can do about that. And so with any of these digital assets, ownership is something that arguably doesn't really exist. 
And um, the question of how do we deal with this, the, well, an answer would be something like blockchain technology, where maybe you have a distributed network that can't be hacked or altered or taken over. It's not controlled by a single corporation, but instead it's a decentralized network owned by all of the users where information, where data, where digital assets are truly owned. You have complete access over your assets, whatever those might be in a digital sense. And so you get a lot of the benefits that we have now Plus, you get a lot more when it comes to privacy and ownership, but obviously that comes at a cost right now, especially. It's um, not very convenient. It's not always very fluid to use blockchain products, something like even just buying Bitcoin. You have to go through an exchange. You've got to link a bank account or a credit card or something, and you've got to buy it. Then you've got to have an, a wallet that you then send that Bitcoin to so that you can store it safely. And there's this whole process it's not very user-friendly at this point. And the point is that most people aren't interested or willing to jump through hoops of any kind, even if it's this tiny little hoop that they just have to hop through. They don't want to do this. They want, they want convenience. And so the question was also posed, why is this the case? Why are these the issues we're dealing with? Why don't people care about this stuff? Why isn't this as much of an issue as we think it should be? And... I guess my opinion personally is that the modern education system has a lot to do with this, where if you think of how our modern education system is structured, you have an expert at the front of the room, you have a textbook in front of you written by approved experts, and these experts, both written and verbal, are dispensing specific information to you, the student, and the goal here is that you memorize specific data sets and preordained mathematical methods, and you spit them out on a test. And that is the way that we learn. That's the way our education system is built. If you are very into, let's say, a poem that you're writing, or you're very into an essay that you're writing, well, when the bell rings and you're in school, uh, it doesn't really matter how much you care about this thing you were working on, your project, or what you were learning, because you need to follow the system. You need to go to the next class. That's what happens when the bell rings. You, you must obey. And that takes precedent over what you're learning, or what you're doing, or what you're creating and so you mentioned like communicative action versus strategic action. And you have said before that advertisers, corporate media, they use communicative action and they don't really use, or sorry, they use strategic action and they don't really use communicative action as well. And when I look at the education system, it seems like it's not quite as communicative where you're teaching things like critical thinking, logic, rhetoric, these types of things, intrinsic motivations. That's not really getting pushed in our current education system. Instead, it's more of this strategic action where you have a specific person or specific sources dispensing specific information, very highly specialized. It standardizes the way we think and what we know. And you have standardized tests, of course to make sure that this is happening correctly. And so when you come out of this, um, typically in a given high school, you don't have classes like logic or rhetoric or entrepreneurship or personal finance. Um, some of these do exist here and there, but in general, that is 
not something that's in most schools. That's not generally being taught to most teenagers. So when you see that the younger generation that is coming up out of this system, that if you go all the way back to the Prussian education model, that's what it was designed to create would be good Uh, workers, good employees in a factory setting where they do rote tasks over and over again, very repetitive. They have to obey management, they follow directions, they follow orders, and they do their job well. That's kind of what's what what the Prussian model was designed to create. And that's what we were built on in our current model. And so you wonder then, when people grow up, and we're in society, and we're living in the world, why don't people think critically? Why aren't they very good at expressing their views or debating different topics? Why are they not very good with their money? Why are they so much in debt and not really thinking about it? Why don't they care about the ownership of their data? And so I would argue that at least a large aspect of this is education, is the way that people are educated, just the system itself. It's not that teachers intentionally don't want kids to learn. It's just that the system is designed to create a certain thing, and it does that well. But that thing is not necessarily critical thinking, and it's not necessarily complex problem solving. It's other things. It's very highly specialized things. And there are benefits to this. It's not all a horrible bad thing, but there are also costs to this. And it it seems like there is a definite influence for from how people are educated to these topics that we're talking about now and how society views these issues of data and privacy and ownership and the role of government and these types of things. There is a correlation there, at least to some degree. Some argue not much at all. Some argue it's um, the end-all be-all. But there, there are definitely some aspects here that affect us today and society as a whole. And the question Juan posed multiple times is, what is the end game? What do we do? How do we use this data, this technology? How do we turn this into a force for good? How do we use this for positive governance and improving our systems? How do we do this? And the thing that really pops into my mind as you're describing the things that you want are things that I actually just read about, or at least listened to, today in the book uh, Technocracy by William Henry Smith. And he describes technocracy in this way. I kind of wrote down a few notes, so they're not exact quotes, but I'm looking Mm -hmm. back at them here, and they should sound fairly familiar. That you, when you have matters of chance in society, they're distributed to all. So if an act of God happens and a hurricane hits, it's not just the area affected by the hurricane that that is hit by this disaster, all of society then pitches in and they all feel that burden. And it's more of this collective view. And that's the idea is that it's much more collective. He uses this term, the common wheel, and all things are done for the good of the common wheel. And that is the focus. It's humanity as a whole. He says we need a national ideology and purpose. And I think it's Stiegler that talks about that as well, about how purpose is what drives society and people need an ideology to follow and that really aids in effective governance and an effective society. Well, um, William Henry Smith says the same thing, that ideology and national, national purpose is a really big deal. And he says that there should be a national council of scientists in power within a democracy. So he's really focused on having having individuals with liberty and democracy and having them with a with large control over their localized systems, more regional governance, things like this, their individual lives, their personal data, these types of things, that is very democratic in his view, 
But at the same time, instead of having what we think of now as a modern nation state, you have a group of experts, a group of technologists, technicians, scientists, these types of people. And those are the ones making the broad decisions that affect everybody. They control a new currency. They control using resources sustainably. Um, he talks about something like a universal basic income. And again, these are all things that I, I have heard echoes of as we've been talking here. And so this is an idea that came out of the 20s. And so this isn't really anything new, so to say. But when you pair that with what I mentioned about the education system, that when people come out of our modern public education system, they... They largely trust experts. They largely trust studies and research and anything that is official. There is statistically a lot higher rate of trust in corporations than there is in government governments. And so when you ask a teenager, for example, do you trust um, your government more? Or do you trust Facebook more? They're probably going to say Facebook, and they're probably going to have bad things to say about both of them. But they do trust experts more um, in general. And w- there is this this idea in society today that if we just have enough data, if we just have enough information, if we have the right algorithms and the right technology, then we can solve all of our problems. We just need more data. We need to collect more. We need to analyze it better, more efficiently. We need stronger AI, these types of things. And so there is this predisposition for the type of governance and economic model that is laid out in the um, in the idea of a technocracy, one where you have experts in charge that make their decisions based on a lot of data that they are collecting about all of their citizens, and they're supposedly making these decisions in a more altruistic way. So the idea is that Humans have these basic instincts that drive us. We are driven by the will to live, the will to make, the will to master, the will to take, or the will to know. And so he argues that the will to live, like basic survival, base desires, these types of things, that was more in ancient civilizations. That was a driving instinct. And then you have this will to make, to construct, that kind of took place after that. You have this will to master, to control, to grow societies and empires and large bureaucracies. And this took over after that. And then you have this combined with the will to take with capitalism. And this would be to acquire and to hoard. These are the ideas that he's talking about here. And we have that with modern economic incentives. That's what's going on from the Industrial Revolution. And he says that the next age should be an age driven by the will to know, because he says that these other instincts are more animalistic, but the will to know is different. It is uniquely human. And that if someone is driven by the desire to know, they're not trying to control people. They're not trying to take from people. They're not trying to uh, create something new. They're trying to understand things. They're trying to learn more. They're trying to know how something works. And then they'll use that knowledge, ideally, to govern society in a very positive, efficient, effective manner. And these people will be much more trustworthy than politicians. This isn't necessarily a political system, although it kind of is. He says it's not. But you have these experts that are in charge, these technologists, technicians, scientists. Those are the types of people that are driven by the will to know. 
And so in his opinion, those are the people that need to be making these types of decisions. And again, we see this with the trends that are going on. The one thing you've mentioned, Juan, multiple times is smart cities. Well, that's a part of this whole idea, this global idea of sustainable development. And there are a lot of very positive things with this, that we need to take care of our environment. We need to make sure that we are taking care of the poor. We want to end poverty. We want economic um, equality for everyone, at least to, on a very basic level. We need um, healthcare for all, all these types of ideas. It's all wrapped up in the idea of sustainable development that's largely pushed by the UN and more global-oriented um, groups. And so that's basically what they're saying. It's basically technocracy. They, they think that we should take a lot of the data, a lot of these scientific studies. We need to implement them on a mass level. And national governments need to probably give up a little bit of their sovereignty in order to make this happen. And we do this on a very localized level. We build these smart cities that collect a lot of data, have a lot of processing power, a lot of surveillance. And we use all that information to... Um, better, uh, I guess, better manage society is a good way of saying it. And so my personal theory is that if we do have something like this come to pass, and that is the direction we continue to go to, then we will have a technocratic leadership that is making these types of decisions based on data collected by technology, all these things we've been talking about. And this will to know might be their main drive, but I, I think it'll either go one of two directions. It'll either be that they will use this system, this um, governance model to either satisfy more base desires, like um, was talked about by William Henry Smith, the will to live, to make, to master, to take, these types of things, um, basically more um, things that are focused on oneself, and that will drive people, and that would be more of the idea of the Machiavellian prince, and you have this idea that they are ruthless, they use cunning, they use force, and they do this to control a society. And it's not all bad because they can control a society very efficiently, very effectively. And so that is what Machiavelli proposes and um, plenty of arguments as to what his intent was with that book. But the point was that you either have this model or you have someone driven by the will to know, and their goal is to satisfy a desire to serve. And that is one that William Henry Smith does not mention. That is one that I thought of myself when I was trying to think of, are there any other desires when I was looking at his system? And the will to serve is one that he doesn't mention, and it admittedly is fairly rare. But you do have this desire that people have, some people have, to altruistically serve people, people that are very nurturing. If you think of the idea of true love, if you think of a lot of religions um, are backed up by this and follow this model of serving others. And so you could have a more technocratic system that governs our society and does this well, and the people in charge are driven by the will to know with the goal of serving society. And in my opinion, that would be more like the uh, model in Plato's Republic, where you had the philosopher king or philosopher kings, and that's more what I see would happen. You would have um, people that are... 
well-versed in many different areas, in philosophy, in science. They're using the scientific method to determine things, and they're doing what they believe is best for society. Now, that sounds a lot better than a Machiavellian prince, but uh, the idea here is that um, the Machiavellian idea would be one that uses force and cunning and deceit to rule over a society, but it works very well. Um, the philosopher king, if you actually look in the Republic, then that society is focused on uh, censorship and social engineering. And those are the key components there that also many people would probably have some issues with. He wants to get rid of uh, all music, is what he says, but art, literature, these types of things that don't fit uh, the ideals that he wants to be produced in that society, and that controls the society. You control education, you control genetics, things like um, eugenics and this type of stuff is something that occurs in the Republic from Plato. And so, to me, it seems like this idea of let's use data and technology to better govern society with this new system, a new economic model that's not just based on profits, and we have people in charge that aren't just these corrupt politicians, corporations aren't the ones making all these decisions, you have more of this scientific council that's in charge, and they're using reason and logic and science. This is good stuff. But if you look at the way that plays out, you know, more than likely you're either going the route of they have a lot of control over information and social engineering, uh, more of a brave new world model, or you have this model in this system totally abused through coercion and force and deceit. And we do see um, aspects of that in today's governance models as well. But it's it's interesting. It's an interesting model that does have a lot of similarities with things that people like Andrew Yang has proposed and things like Agenda 21 or Agenda 2030 out of the UN with sustainable development and things that, one, you've talked about multiple times with smart cities and using data to better serve society. And so that, that's at least my personal um, prediction. My personal uh, proposal here would be that that is at least the direction we're headed and it seems like society is very open to that. And so, yeah, it'll it'll be interesting to see how these things progress. And when we have these anti-establishment movements with Brexit and someone like Donald Trump getting elected, nationalism, isolationism, we do see these nation states kind of pulling back from a global model and the nation state playing less of a role. Like we've already mentioned, corporations are playing more of a role. And you have um, institutions like the UN and sustainable development that are um, having more influence in society. And so there, there are trends in this direction. And it could go in a good way. It could go in a bad way. We don't know. But it's a proposal, at least, that seems to fit a lot of these things that we're talking about. And so that's the one that, that I have been researching lately and to me that is very interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, I think if, we, if we're building on the past, right, and if we're building on, on, uh, on past experience, I think a, one important way to frame it, which is a, maybe a little different than yours, Joshua, is... You know what we, the the inheritance of um, both the liberal and republican political theoretical traditions are both uh, 
are basically a balance, an institutional framework that we have in places like the United States and Europe and around the world for neutralizing power on the one hand, what people, how people can impose themselves on others, but also uh, creating, again, as I've, as I've sort of emphasized, a certain realm of autonomy. Uh, within that realm of autonomy, we have included things like private property uh, in a very wide sense. Now, a lot of, um, I think what you're, I think what, you know, I think one important thing to think about is um, when we're talking about, let's say, when we're talking about the owner, what exists today in terms of big data and big tech and algorithms and changing and reconfiguring the ownership model and what data can be used for. I think what what um, people, uh, what some of us are trying to try to propose is not necessarily some kind of technocratic society where that would be ruled by, let's say, a council of experts that would use data to better manage society in line with some kind of ultimate uh, efficiency as an end, but rather how do we, how do we, um, look at what we have, what we have had had, and the way that, and the way we've used different technologies, law as a technology, money as a technology, uh, to regulate basically our living together, to balance that that tension between private and, and public interest, private autonomy, and public and general public interest. Now that we have algorithms, what can we do with that? What realms of life should be left to communicate face-to-face communication, to informal communication, to deliberation, to deliberation, uh, uh, discursive deliberation, and should be sealed off from interference from either you know government administration from algorithmic and technical administration and from the market and which ones should be left to let's say the market to some realm of a technocracy that is somehow reactive to that discursive sphere and to administration also reactive to the administrative to discursive sphere i think what i'm trying to emphasize is not the notion of some technical society which i i would personally be very I would personally think that is um, that you can't have technocratic solutions to political issues. We could go back to the famous, to the, to the, to the very famous philosopher Hannah Arendt, you know, who talks about basically um, how humans can only be human. The human condition is characterized by the fact that we rely on a public setting, on public life, and the perspectives of others and ourselves to have a self at all. It's only in the glaring light of the public sphere, and she's her model is the Greek, the, the ancient Greek pol- the polis, Athens. It's only in the public sphere where, because of the perspectives of others, because of our discussion and the way that they respond to us, because of the way they point out our errors, because of the way they react to our to our speeches, to our talk, because of what the way that they reflect ourselves back to ourselves. And the way that they reflect the reality around us to ourselves, it's only in that sense that we can get a sense of reality. Um, this remains a primordial sort of level of politics, 
that face-to-face relation as a way of not only making sense of a reality in a community, but also a horizon of experience. However, in our very complex societies that we live in today, where markets regulate, you know, trade in, in, in chains of production that are extremely long, where something, you know, your iPhone sitting in your pocket was was made by uh, put together by someone in a factory in China, uh, but the minerals came from Mongolia and Bolivia and all these different places, um, where the world is extremely complex, and we have already a technology like money and the market that has created this complexity. What parts of that can be brought back down to the level of discursive decision making, communicative rather than strategic action? What part should but be brought down there. How can we use and utilize algorithms to, in a sense, bring, um, make more accountable democratic frameworks? Now, it's not about top-down. It's about bottom-up. That's what I'm trying to talk about. It's about how do you make institutions, the administration, the state, and markets more responsive to communities that are deciding on their values through a discursive framework that is constantly, evo- constantly evolving and where they're coming up through their interactions, face-to-face interactions, linguistic, discursive interactions on what they value. You know, it's not about, I think we have to get away from this thinking that uh, that it's viable, let's say, anything like a platonic ideal society would be viable. It's within our, con- think about our modern context, where we have very high, t- very high thresholds for what we consider legitimate political uh, formations. We would never give up our personal autonomy um, for some kind of republic, for some kind of platonic republic, where some philosopher kings get to wield and decide what's good for us, we say, as people who are inheritor, who are inheritors of the Enlightenment, that we are the sovereigns um, as a people, and we do not, and that doesn't, we don't turn that over very lightly. It might seem that way, I think, day to day, that we're turning that over. But when push comes to shove, I mean, in a place like the United States, I think sooner or later. Um, people would fight for that freedom rather than. I mean, I think it's up to. I tend to. to I tend to be positive, to be a little pos, uh, a little optimistic that I think most people in the United States are so imbued by a, by what I would call a modern perspective on politics that they would not easily give up. Yes, they're willing. They will give a lot of freedoms up for a lot of reasons, but at some point they will say no more, right? And I think we're seeing that in the way that people are reacting in their voting this, this time around. Uh, some people read it differently. But I think, you know, I, I think I want to clarify some things is, uh, about what you're saying. I think it's important to build on what we have and think about, it's not about how do we create a system that algorithms sort of like run things from the top down. It's how do we take what we have, which an institutional framework where the people who created it 200 plus years ago could have never imagined industrial capitalism, globalization, neoliberalism, algorithmic governmentality, big data, the kind of technology, not even television, you know, and how do we reshape that model so that it's, so that at the level of where people are determining what's good for them, there's a sort of transfer of that public opinion to lawmaking and from there directly to to the administrative state um, so that, it's reactive to to the to the polis to the to the to the people at large, not to strategic interest of corporations, not to the strategic interest of 
uh, and definitely not to the technical rationality of some elite that decides for people what's good for them. You see what I'm trying to get at? Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, I would you like know, and to I think, and, make a clarification myself yeah. as well. Um, yeah. I do totally agree with you, and I do think yeah. that... I do believe that, especially in America, people would not give up their freedoms, period. Not only lightly, but just at all. They won't yeah. do it. And so, yeah, yeah. Um, one clarification here is that um, most people who are proponents of a technocratic type of a system do believe in actually giving the individual even more freedom and even more liberty and making political systems much more localized and regional so that, for example, Mm -hmm. if you have um, Atlanta, the city of Atlanta in Georgia, the city of Atlanta has very different political views than the whole entirety of the rural areas throughout Georgia. And so if you actually gave the city of Atlanta much more freedom and liberty to make their own political decisions, and you gave the rest of the state, or the rural areas at least, the ability to create their own political systems, and you do this, like you say, from a bottom-up approach, then the individuals have a lot more power and a lot more freedom, and that is something people can really get behind. The catch is that if you do that, you are necessarily taking power and sovereignty away from the nation state in order to give it to these more localized, more regional bodies and political entities. And when you do that, you do create a little bit of a power vacuum and you do need somebody with more of a global perspective, more of a perspective about the planet and the human race. That is not something that's going to be on the minds of the city of Atlanta, more than likely. But it would be on the mind of maybe something like, we'll use the UN for an example, just because they currently exist. And they do have more of a global outlook, a more uh, a view of humanity as a whole. And so... If you treat a technocratic solution not as a political entity, but more of a governance and technical entity that makes some decisions and does research and studies and collects data on a more global perspective and tries to distribute things evenly around the world for all of humanity And then you have the individual and the small local regions, they have a lot of say over their individual lives and over their communities, and they can build relationships and uh, transact the way that they want to and work the way they want to and take care of the poor the way they want to, and they can do this. And so, again, you can have that where you actually give people more freedom, more liberty, and I think that's usually the proposal, but when you do that, you necessarily are transferring power from the nation state to the more regional bodies, more like um, the original concept of the United States of America prior to the Constitution, more of that kind of idea. And when you do that, you do still need, I think most people believe, you still need something. You need some body that has a larger perspective. You need some conglomerate of maybe representatives of the people, representatives of governments, representatives of corporations. You need people, you need somebody, you need somebody to handle some of these global issues, something like global warming. That would be nearly impossible to deal with 
if you are completely localized to different cities and small regions. You yeah. need a large body to deal with these types of things. And I think people are very open to that. And people not only yeah. are open, I think they want that. And so I, I do see how that would fit yeah. in. Um, an, another kind of random side note, I, I don't know if you ever looked into uh, democratic confederalism. Have you ever looked into that? No, I don't think I don't think I have. Okay, very interesting. It 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 really falls in line with what you're saying. So you had um an area in northern Syria, what you've heard on the news as the Kurds, um, this area known as Rojava, and the way their governance system was set up is they declared autonomy from the local nation states, and there were millions of people. It was a very large group, and I think only about maybe sixty percent were Kurds. There were a lot of Arabs and a lot of different people. But the way they set it up is that they would have these very localized councils that would meet up. And so you'd meet up with the people in your neighborhood and you would make decisions that affected your neighborhood. And then right. a few people would go from that council and you would have one that was more the city block, so to say. And they would have a council that would meet up that affected that region. And yeah. then you would have maybe a city council that met up and you would have representatives from all the different city blocks that would go to that and you know so on and so forth. But the idea is that it's a bottom-up approach it is very democratic, and it is something that um, avoids a lot of the issues and pitfalls that we have with modern governments. And so um, it, it worked. It actually worked very well. They had uh, mandatory, you had to have 50% representation of women on these councils. And this is yeah. in the middle of this Turkey and Syria. Yeah. So mm -hmm. um, given the context here, that's a pretty big deal. And right. um, so they did this. But the key as to why it actually worked there seems to be that they all had this ideology of community where they viewed things from a very collectivist viewpoint. They have this more Eastern mentality versus the individualism of the West. And yeah. they were willing to go to neighborhood councils and go to a million different councils and talk to their neighbors. They built relationships. Right. And yeah, it's just what I... What I'm hearing is that, yeah, we want something like that, but a reality is people are largely not building face-to-face -face relationships in today's world, and people yeah. are largely not interested in philosophy or political theory, and people are not really broadly educated um, aside from highly specialized um, fields. And so yeah. I just don't know if it's realistic to um, say that people as a whole will do anything like this. And you mentioned like we or what's best for us. And it's just that relies on the common person, the common citizen to step up and have some civic responsibility and personal responsibility. And I think most people would rather um, transfer that responsibility to the state or to a corporation or yeah. to someone else, um, their employer. And so that's where I think our, our biggest sticking point is with yeah. any of these ideas is the individual person. Yeah, and I, I think we're fundamentally in agreement here. I think, you know, I think what, what you were just talking about is is a big discussion in political theory, and it has to do with to what extent, let's say, is something like the Supreme Court a steward for democracy, in a sense, like watching out for democracy, and then occasionally in really heated moments, politics heats up, and people step into the public sphere and actually say, hey, we need this, we need that. But most of the time, people are willing to let, let's say, the institutions sort of work it out and that's why we've created that's why in a sense the robust framework in which you have a legal system that has something like a judicial review body 
that's supposed to you know, again neutralize power not only the executives but the legislative is important i think i think what and i think what you were talking about is is i i agree with it actually i whether if 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 i get if i understood you correctly i think we do need a sort of rescaling of levels of governance from the global, sorry, from the local to the, to the national, where uh, there's a new re, a redistribution of powers, a re-neutralization of powers. It's about how do you neutralize powers because you can't expect people to act morally, really. That's not what creating a modern institutional framework is. You want them to, but you can't expect them to. So the, the whole the whole idea, the, the nugget, the inside of the, the distribution of powers is you never give anyone body too much power and you try to create mechanisms to somehow to somehow transmit a very messy um set of positions in the world by people from different perspectives into a legitimate set of laws that work for most people if not all majority of people but have to but at the end of the day have to have some inbuilt fail-safe sort of um uh regular uh fails of sort of like boundaries that you can't cross you know so that you protect minorities so you protect people who don't you know who might have different political views and so forth so when you're talking about i think that you do need some kind of like national level bodies that sort of think can translate tech very technical and complex information into a decision-making process i think that i think that is true the question then also remains though how do you make sure that those continue to flow into the political process in a way that's legitimate and where people are able to, in a sense, it's interact with that the, the public sphere. Uh, and, and I think we're I think you're a lot of the things you're you're pointing out are very insightful and I think get to these problems that we have without how do you create a robust democratic system in a very complex society technologically, uh, where people are most likely most of the time not going to be fully heated up in the political process. I mean, the regime, I mean, these people are fighting for the lives, right? Of course, they're going to be like going to councils every day. But, you know, it's it's in our consumer driven society of complacency, it's hard to imagine people getting up every day to go to a, the, the, the neighborhood council, the city council, the regional council to make decisions and make sure that democracy is in their hands. And so, so I think you bring up a lot of really fundamental questions. And yeah, it, it is getting a little late. Um, I'm enjoying massively the discussion, but I'm also f- starting to get tired. <laughs> Fair <laughs> and enough. I, and and I don't, Jason, are you awake over there? I have a pounding headache. <laughs> and if you'd like, I could leave us as I typically do with uh, consulting a change management perspective. <laughs> what's what's and that? And then we can go to sleep. Hmm. Uh, give us your consulting uh, management perspective. And I think maybe we, I don't know how you feel about it, Joshua, but I'm happy to wrap up and, and yeah, that's say fine. that we did. We had a pretty good conversation. This has been good. I mean, I, I'm we're almost at four hours. <laughs> Lord, at how long we've been talking and how much we've covered. Yeah. Uh, it's great. So, so I, um, you know, I as our listeners know, and um, you know, maybe just to give a quick introduction to Joshua's listeners, I work in the change management area in in consulting, basically. Mm-hmm going into organizations and we use systems to collect data on staff and leaders across the organization. We identify coordination issues, silos, risks that are not being communicated up and down the command chain and across the organization. Um, And then we apply that data to try to expand awareness, understanding and engagement about the changes that the organization, the leaders want to implement. 
We build new systems and processes to get everyone tracking towards the same goals. And we have analytical models that track how someone uses their time, but that data is largely used to identify offices that require additional resources and support to be successful. So often these are organizations where employees were not empowered to influence decision-making processes, or they didn't feel like their voices would be heard. But by standing up modern knowledge man management systems, breaking down communicative barriers, the research shows that these strategy and tech pairings create more successful organizations with better integrated, happier employees. And of course, we create profit with greater efficiencies and reduced costs. But we need to test these change management approaches in the public sphere, stripped of their capital ends to answer what Juan has described as an empirical question, how to optimize the, produ the uh, production and distribution of resources to achieve public needs and tie this to democratic processes through technology. And maybe it's something like a blockchain, Joshua, like you were talking about. But, but I think if we take a, a broader perspective on some of these practices that are being uh, developed and, and um, innovated on within these management consultancies that we've been talking about, there's a lot of uh, good that we can do with, with the approaches to data collection and the technologies that are, are paired with that. And, and the strategic action that comes with it, strategy isn't all bad. It's just you know what it's paired with, the context in which it's occurring. And yeah. um, because it's something that happens fundamentally in our lives, we are always strategizing. Yeah. So, but that's you know, we, we can continue to hash that out, you and I, Juan. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, mean I, 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 th I think in some ways I feel closer to your perspective in a sense that in reality we can expect most people not to be some kind of ideal, you know, Democrat. Not in like the U.S. Democrat, but like Democratic-oriented sort of personality type. You know, yes, there are going to be some people who think are always thinking about the common good and about hearing as many reasons as they can and voting based on what they think is. But a lot of times people are going to vote for their interests. Sometimes those interests are going to be narrowly conceived in terms of whatever, whatever, you know, their wealth, their, their, their race, their culture, whatever. And the fact, and, and I think, Jason, I think the big insight there is how do we, you know, our, our legacy is very much a legacy of how to neutralize, how do you neutralize sort of these human human faults, right? The fact that we are faulty creatures, the fact that our actions have un, unexpected consequences, the fact that we are liable to hurt each other if we don't have ways to regulate our interactions, um, the fact that we have fault, we have a very limited capacity to tell the future and we have... Um, the world is very complex and we always make mistakes and there are always externalities as you call them to our actions. So how do you how do you neutralize these problems, not only in terms of the individual, but in terms of the corporation and in terms of technologies? I think it remains an empirical question of how do we build on our legacies, um, on our legacies of the system of rights that we've inherited in private and, you know, through law, um, the market systems that we have, which I think are, are really important to, to be critical about you know, I don't think you can, I don't think any of the questions, we really haven't talked about it very much, but I don't know, I'm not going to go into it because we'll be another four hours, but you really can't, I think, you really can't uh, go in depth into this unless you have a critique of capital and understand the logic of capital and the good things about it, how it's an ex expansionary technology that in, is super powerful and very productive and that it's destructive, that it's very destructive and that it has it and it's, and it's, and it pits capital against labor in a way that, that, 
you know anybody who looks coldly at the history of cap at capitalism sees is an, an ever recurrent tension um a battle between between uh, those who own uh capital and those who own own nothing but their wages and are trying to reclaim as much free time as they can and those who are trying to claim as much work as they can for at least for a little pay i mean there's a tension and built into that uh which i think overspills into the political arena and in a struggle uh for rights and we have to think you know how do we you know how do we parse out as as joshua was saying how do we rescale um the dimensions of communicative action versus strategic action given the fact that we have something like algorithms now which which in a way can structure reality in a way that we haven't thought about. I, I really think it remains an empirical question. I think I think at the end it remains how do you balance out autonomy of the private individual with the public interests and how do you neutralize the fact that people most of the time are imperfect and act strategically and and with a very limited horizon of not only of of orientation of values but also faulty ideas on the world, right? I mean, we think we know something and then two years later we look back and we realize we were we had our you know in hindsight we see the world in different in a different way that works politically as well um so i do, I do think jason that's a good maybe framework for you that you were bringing up like this idea that it's really an empirical question how do we neutralize these dimensions of life to create robust democracies and, and and in that way, I really think people across the political spectrum, not always, <laughs> some people are just going to be so dogmatic, you can't, but are going to be able to think about, oh, okay, I see how our supposedly antagonistic interests can actually align when we start thinking about things this way. Yeah, I want to make some comments, too, that um, really correspond here, that it's very important that we as a society and we as individuals particularly build relationships and that we have meaningful discourse with each other and that mm -hmm. we increase our education. I think these are some of the keys to progressing as a society and progressing in these ways that we are talking about need um, progression and that we want them to progress in a positive way. And I, I do think that change management and strategic action will definitely be implemented. These things will be happening. And so I believe my role and the way listeners and other people should be viewing this is that we want to educate others to pursue these methods to improve society and to educate others. We want people to use change management strategies and strategic action to better their lives and the lives of those around them. That is the goal. But we also want to educate people and people should recognize that the use of these methods will be undertaken by institutional players as well. And there will be governments, uh -huh. there will be corporations that will use change management and strategic action in order yeah. to steer society as well. And they have very different motives and incentives than the right. individual focused on liberty. And so these are things that I think are the most important. I think education is one of the most important things. And I think it is very important for us and for us as a society 
to make sure that we are pushing this idea of building relationships, continuing our education, learning more, and having meaningful discourse and conversation with one another so that we can be a part of a positive shift in society and be a part of um, encouraging this trend to be one that is more towards a an optimistic outlook versus the dystopian possibility that we all recognize is a possibility and so yeah. that's the that's the focus that i would want to end on yeah no i and i agree with you josh josh and i only add the 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 element that i think you know education and the fact that people have to politically be active too in a way make sure that those actors which are going to implement a sort of technical rationality that people mobilize politically because that's the only way that they're going to be able to in a way influence the institutional framework to neutralize those players um and i think that's where real politics is really important and people's involvement and mobilization in politics and in a democratic politics is, is fundamental you can't you can't take back the political system and democratize it unless people get mobilized and actually realize that there's that there's a system to, in a sense, continue working. Uh, there's a democ- democratic project, unfinished, imperfect, always, that needs to be continually worked on. Yeah, well, I guess if we have discussed everything that we think we can discuss in one sitting, um, I do want to say thank you to you, Juan, and you, Jason, for doing this with me. I really enjoyed this conversation. I think we covered just a ridiculous amount of stuff. And I have much more, I'm sure you do too, that we could expound on for hours and hours. But I think we have done a very good job. I think we have covered a lot of stuff, brought up some very interesting and important questions about the trends in society and with technology. So thank you guys for joining me and doing this. Thank you. And uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know what you think, Jason, but I think we we have like four episodes. Yeah. <laughs> We can have a conversation about how we're going to break this up, but uh, this has uh, really been great. Um, I'm uh, glad that uh, we were able to uh, find so many intersections between the kind of core interests of, of our uh, shows, and uh, I think uh, both our, our listeners will really enjoy this conversation. So thanks so much, Joshua. Yeah. Thank you, jo- Yeah, thanks, Joshua. Yeah, you're welcome. Do you enjoy what you're hearing on Panoptic Pod? Is the application of philosophy, media theory, and communications theory to everyday practical contexts something that you find interesting or useful? If so, please consider supporting our podcast through Patreon at patreon.com slash panopticpod. You can also access our Patreon through our website, panopticpod.com. There you can also drop us a line or a comment. Jason and I are always looking for ways to improve this podcast. Your support and comments will help us in that endeavor.